Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And I have to tell you, I love Women in the Word and I love being here with other women who have come to study the Word of God. So thank you for being here today. I have a string of seven little grandkiddos from two to seven, and right in the middle of that string of grandkiddos is John Robert. Now, John Robert is four years old, and already at the ripe old age of four, John Robert is well-versed in new beginnings in his life. He's lived um, on three different continents, He's lived in six houses. I have, I think he's lived on five different military installations, but I've kind of lost count. Now, one of the great perks of being four years old and having a lot of new beginnings in your life is that he's also visited Disney World in Paris, Hong Kong, and Tokyo. Yeah, his family moved to Florida just a few months ago and they had uh, barely unpacked when they got word that they would be moving again this summer. And as you can imagine, a little guy that's had all these new beginnings in four short years, he never meets a stranger, ever. He chats it up wherever we go, whatever we're doing. He just goes right in, tells his name, asks their name gives a lot of details of his life immediately. Um, I think he thinks I may never see these people again. I've got to get in everything I possibly can now. Now, I was visiting um, his sweet little family recently, and I was on the playground with John Robert, and Every kiddo that came up to him on this big playscape where he was playing and I was standing next to him, every kiddo that came up, he introduced himself and then the first thing he said was, as soon as the weather gets warm, I'm gonna be moving again. I'm going to have, I'm gonna have a new school and I think I'm even gonna have a new playground. How about you? Are you gonna be moving again when the weather gets warm? And these little three and four year olds were just looking at him like, what are you talking about? The Israelites have been in Egypt for 430 years. They're hoping for a new beginning, aren't they? They would love to answer John Roberts' question, are you moving again soon? With a resounding yes. And we get the great opportunity to look at that together this morning. So open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 11. And let's read how God prepares the nation of Israel for a new beginning, a nation that's going to have a new hope, a new identity, a new future. Okay, let's read uh, beginning in chapter 11 in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh and servants and in the sight of the people. Now, because of their arrogant and self-serving Pharaoh, the people of Egypt have really suffered through some hard times in the last six to nine months since the plagues began. 
The plagues have devastated their land. It's ruined their economy. I think it's changed most of their lives drastically. And up until now, neither they nor Moses have known how many plagues there would be. They had no idea to know how long this would go on. But right here, as we begin chapter 11, God reveals to Moses for the first time, the final plague is imminent. And Pharaoh, when that final plague comes, is not only going to just let them go, he's going to drive them away completely. Now, back in chapter three that we studied together a few weeks ago, when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he said to Moses that when Israel left Egypt, they would not go empty-handed. God's favor would rest on them, and the people of Egypt were going to open up their coffers and give them gifts of gold and silver and fine linens. Now, Moses, it tells us here, is actually quite respected in the land of Egypt right now because he has been the broker of all those amazing plagues uh, that have happened here in Egypt. The people revere him and fear him. And now Moses is directed to go to the nation of Israel and say, the time is now. Just go knock on your neighbor's door and ask for their gold and their silver. Um, now, I think that's kind of a crazy idea. Can you imagine leaving here today and going to your neighbor, knock, knock, knock. I'd really like that diamond ring I saw you wearing yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a crazy idea that the Egyptians would give these slaves that they've tortured and worked endlessly all their wealth. But this is proof that God's favor can never be denied. God's favor can never be denied. After four centuries of serving as slaves to the Egyptians, God is going to make sure that the Israelites, his people, are well paid for all those centuries of work. They are going to be compensated for every single day that they made bricks and gathered straw. Essentially, what happens here is the nation of Israel plunders Egypt, don't they, before leaving. And they leave with enough wealth. We're going to see next year when we study the tabernacle, they leave with enough wealth to build the entire tabernacle, to furnish the tabernacle, which is going to be furnished with incredible, incredible things, to provide all the utensils for the tabernacle and even provide the linen and cloth for the priestly garments. God's favor here provides everything that the Israelites are going to need out in the middle of the desert as they head toward the promised land. Now, last week, we studied chapter 10 with Lynn, and we saw at the end of chapter 10, we saw Pharaoh's anger, didn't we? He said to Moses, get out of my sight. Don't ever come back here. And if you do, I am going to kill you. But as we pick up here in chapter 11, verse 4, what we see here actually is the end of that conversation that started back in chapter 10. Pharaoh has the first words, but we're going to see how Moses answers Pharaoh right here in chapter, in verse four of chapter 11. Read with me. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be such a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. 
but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me and say, get out, you and all your people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Okay, so Moses does have the last word here, doesn't he, with Pharaoh. He tells him of the final deadly plague. It's coming. The firstborn sons of Egypt are going to die from Pharaoh's family to the most humble of the servant girl in Egypt. Her son will die too. No Egyptian family will be spared from losing their firstborn son. Even the firstborn of the cattle is going to be taken. Now, this final plague is going to strike at the very heart of the Egyptian culture. It's going to strike the firstborn sons who are considered the strength of the nation. Um, one author I read described the firstborn sons of Egypt as sacred. They were so valued that they were worshiped and revered in Egypt. This plague strikes a blow to the future of Egypt and it targets that younger generation of Egypt, that generation that is set to be its leaders, its innovators, its soldiers. They're all wiped out in one faithful night. In fact, I read an account that had computed all, how many people there were in Egypt that time and based on some sort of formula, they came up that there were probably 70,000 firstborn sons that died that night in Egypt. Now, a firstborn grown son, one that was old enough to have his own children and his own family, was spared in this. It was going to be his young son, the child, the one that was not grown to adulthood who would die. This is a generational future of Egypt that's gonna be struck down in one night. Not only does it cripple Egypt physically and emotionally as an entire nation, as it loses its most cherished member of their family, but more importantly, it is God's judgment. It is God's judgment on Egypt. You have to remember that it was Egypt's own Pharaoh who had proclaimed all the boy, baby boys in Israel should be cast into the river and killed. We studied that back in um, chapter one, if you remember. And then if the river didn't kill them, they wanted the midwives to kill them. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, theologian Warren Wiersbe says, this is the Lord's way of simply disciplining Pharaoh with his own currency. Um, and we also, more importantly, have to remember what God said about Israel back in chapter four, how he describes Israel as his firstborn son. Look on your verse sheet with me at Exodus 4, 22, 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Moses had warned Pharaoh that what goes around comes around. For centuries, Egypt and its Pharaohs have been gravely mistreating God's own firstborn son. God had offered Pharaoh mercy before the plagues had even began. He offered to save Egypt's firstborn sons if all Pharaoh had to do was let his firstborn son leave. 
But Pharaoh's had a hard heart. We've talked about it week in and week out since the plagues began. And in his unbelief, his unbelief, he refused to listen to God. And God's judgment on that unbelief is now going to be carried out in this final plague. Now Moses ends his conversation here with Pharaoh by expressing his own anger. And I know we can all imagine how frustrated Moses has to be. He knows countless children are going to die here because of Pharaoh's unbelief. He knows all that's been um, visited on the nation of Israel as they have served Pharaoh, how they have suffered. So certainly in the face of the evil that Moses has faced with Pharaoh week in and week out, we would expect nothing less from God's man Moses than his righteous anger. Now, a few years ago, I had someone in my life that constantly challenged me uh, and questioned me about my faith. No matter what I said or did, they had some kind of cryptic remark to make about my faith. And so what I did was challenge them to actually read the Bible. You don't wanna hear it from me, so why don't you hear it from God and read the Bible for yourself? And they did, I was shocked, but they did read the Bible. But unfortunately, after reading through the Bible, they decided that God was doing things wrong. God was doing things wrong, that God was out of line for meting out justice and judgment throughout the scriptures as we see it. They even talked about this final plague as one of those things that God had probably gotten wrong. Now, as we listen in to Pharaoh's uh, uh, to Moses' words to Pharaoh here about the final plague, we have to understand what my friend refused to see, refused to see, and that is that both mercy and judgment belong to a holy God alone. You know, as a loving and a holy God, um, mercy and judgment are God's to dispense in his world, in his world. So if we're sitting here this morning reading this and thinking, whoa, 70,000 children are going to die? Uh, isn't that a little bit hard? There's some things we need to remember and recognize, some important truths about God. And the first one is, is that God truly is the creator of life and the sustainer of life. The days of our lives and the lives of all these children um, are his to give and his to take away. As sinners in a fallen world, ladies, we live out our lives every single day only because God in his mercy ordains each one of them. Look at Psalm 139 on your verse sheet. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none. It is God that ordains each one of our days. The second thing we have to remember as we look at this final plague is that we have no standing as sinful human beings to pass our own judgment on a holy God whose very character is rooted in righteousness and justice. Look at Psalm 89:14 on your verse sheet. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. 
God is a just and a loving God. That is his character. There is nothing that he does, even met out the judgment of this final plague that is not rooted in righteousness and in um, steadfast love and faithfulness. It is his character to give out mercy and judgment. And then finally, as we think about this final plague, we need to remember that the Egyptians were pagan polytheists who refused to worship the one true God, even when they were given the chance to see his power over and over and over again through these nine plagues. These nine plagues, as they watched God carry this out, should have struck down their belief in these false gods. As a result of their continued and ever-present pagan worship, they became objects of his judgment. Look at Romans 1, 28, or 1, 18 through 23 with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they were futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. A truth for all of us to remember as we look at this final plague is that mercy and judgment rightly belong to God alone. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's look at chapter 12, verses one through six. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, what we have here is the dawn of a new age for the nation of Israel as God makes his plans to redeem them from the bondage that they've experienced for centuries in Egypt. Israel has previously had a civil calendar. It began in the fall with the harvest in September and October. And now God is revealing to Moses and Aaron that they are going to have a new beginning of the year with a religious calendar that begins in the spring and that new calendar is going to begin with a new feast that he lays out here. This new feast is going to be celebrated corporately as a nation by each and every family of the nation. And this new calendar is a symbol of Israel's new national identity. They are God's favored and redeemed nation now. They've been Abraham's family. They've been the covenant people. But now they are God's favored, redeemed nation. They are bound together from here as they begin this new calendar with the feast of the Passover throughout history as the nation of Israel. Now, 
even though these celebrations were held in individual homes, we see the Lord use the words that signal this new beginning in verses three and six, because he calls them the congregation of Israel or the community of Israel. If you have an NIV, for the very first time, we see this in the Old Testament. And that affirms God's plan for them to have a national identity as the nation of Israel. Now, God's instructions for the Passover celebration initiate that new identity, that new national identity. And God gives those instructions here for the feast that begins this new religious calendar for them. Um, He gives it to Moses and Aaron. Uh, I think you looked at it in your homework. Each household is to choose a male lamb, one year old or younger, and that male lamb is to be perfect without blemish. Now, Um, The ESV translation gives us uh, the instruction that they are to choose that lamb on the 10th of the month and they are to keep it until they slaughter it on the 14th of the month. And those four days were an opportunity for them to make sure that it met the divine specifications that God had given to them. And on the 14th day, that lamb was to be slain at twilight. Now, I always think of twilight as that period of time between when the sun goes down and when it gets really dark. But the most widely view of how God is using twilight here um, did not mean after the sun actually set. But in the Jewish day, the first evening began after the noon hour and the second evening began when the sun set. So the most widely held view is that the twilight that God is speaking of here is between noon and when the sun actually sets. In Jesus's day, the Passover lamb was slain in the mid-afternoon, around 3 p.m. What would that correspond to? That would correspond to the exact time that Jesus gave up his life on the cross at three in the afternoon. Okay, we've got more instructions here. So look with me at verse seven. And then they should take some some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no blood will befall you to destroy, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, God himself calls this the Lord's Passover here, and it is the feast that celebrates the redemption of the whole nation of Israel. Um, It is uh, a crucial part 
of that necessary feast that God calls the Passover is of course the blood of the lamb that is placed on the top and the sides of the doorpost. It is the blood that consecrates each house as an altar. As an altar, in the past, when Israel has made its sacrifices, um, they have put the blood um, on an altar, and here they're consecrating their houses uh, as an altar. And it is a sign, a sign that God mentions here to the Israelites, and it is a sign of the fact that a life has been taken, has been poured out as a means of their salvation. Um, the blood on the doorpost is an act of propitiation, a word that means an atoning sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that would cover their sin as an individual household and as a nation and would set them apart to God. Applying the blood to their doorposts would also show something else as well. By applying the blood to the doorpost, it would be an act of faith. It would be an act of faith. It would mean they would have to believe that God wanted them to carry out this feast of Passover in order to be saved. And as they put that blood on their doorposts, a covering for their sin, they would be professing the truth that their God is their deliverer and their savior and the angel of death would pass over their houses. Look at 11. 28. This speaks of Moses and his act of faith. Hebrews eleven twenty eight on your verse sheet says, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, there's symbolism and meaning in every portion of the feast that the Lord gives here to Moses and Aaron. The lamb is to be roasted. It's not to be left and eaten raw as the pagans would eat meat that was sacrificed to their gods. It's to be served whole. It's not to be cut up in pieces and boiled in a pot. That's the reason it was roasted so it could be left whole. And the reason for leaving it whole is it would come to the table whole, head, legs, inward parts, and it would remind them that this was a living animal that had lost its life as a sacrifice for their sake and their safety. Now, the unleavened bread, which is part of the feast of the Passover, signaled that there's not going to be any time for them to let the bread rise before they bake it because they have a hasty journey that God is going to um, allow them to make as they leave Egypt together. The bitter herbs were always to remind them of the cruel and bitter treatment they had suffered at the hands of the Egyptians for centuries. It also says there not to be any leftovers here, which I found that uh, particularly interesting. Um, of course, they're leaving the next morning after the Passover, so supposedly they wouldn't have uh, leftovers in their house. They're not to carry it with them because this is a special sacrificial meal. It's not just to be eaten casually the next day along the road for them to drag out some of that roasted lamb. Although this was a celebration, they were not to just dress up in their fine clothes. They were to be dressed for travel as they ate with their belt fastened and their sandals on because the next morning they were going to take a hasty journey after, um, out of Egypt. 
So on the very night of the Passover, we learn here, after they've eaten the roasted lamb and the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, God and his destroyer would pass through the land and bring death to every firstborn son and animal that was not covered by the sacrifice of blood. And through these deaths would come judgment, judgment to every one of Egypt's false and fake gods. You know, Pharaoh's son dies that night, and Pharaoh's son was held to be a god himself. And if he was a god, he was not able to save himself from the punishment of the one true God. Men was the Egyptian goddess of reproduction, and Isis was the goddess of love who attended women in childbirth. And they were both defeated the night of the Passover and judged powerless by this plague that killed the very children they were supposed to protect. Every Egyptian god was powerless when confronted with the one true God. And all of those, a whole nation of Egyptians that had believed day in and day out in those fake and powerless gods, were shown the judgment of the one true God they had mocked. Now, in the church today, we don't celebrate the Passover routinely, do we? We have our own ordinances in the New Testament church. We have baptism, we have communion, but we cannot miss the meaning that Passover has for us in the New Testament church. Just as Israel was saved that night by the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb, we are also given salvation um, by an unblemished lamb, aren't we? Jesus Christ is the unblemished lamb of God whose blood provides our redemption, our salvation from sin, our eternal um, uh, salvation to be with God. Look at John 1.29 on your verse sheet. The next day, he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Ephesians 1, 7, In him, meaning Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. For us, it's not blood on the doorposts, is it? For us, it's blood shed on the cross that offers new life to anyone that personally accepts Jesus' sacrifice as the Lamb of God. That's what the Israelites were doing. They were accepting that sacrifice of the unblemished lamb roasted on their table because his blood was on their doorpost. We're accepting the sacrifice of the unblemished Lamb of God from his blood shed on the cross. It is his blood that defeats death for all who place their faith in him. And it's the Passover lamb that clearly points to the ultimate lamb of God. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's look at verse um, 14, chapter 12. Now this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever, for you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." 
On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread, for on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever." So God continues his conversation with Moses here, and he declares that the Passover celebration is going to be a memorial to the Lord for generations to come. It's going to be a lasting ordinance or a lasting requirement for the nation of Israel. It's not for just this year as they leave the nation of Israel, but it is a lasting ordinance for them to remember what God has done for them. And he adds to this Passover feast that we've just read about, the lamb, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs. He adds the celebration of what is called the feast of the unleavened bread that follows that Passover supper for seven days. That feast of the unleavened bread begins with the Passover um, dinner, and that Passover dinner is like Israel's National Independence Day. It's our 4th of July. The Passover signals their freedom, their freedom. And then the celebration is going to continue for seven days after that. Now, leaven is another word for yeast, and your translation may have actually said yeast in it. Yeast in the scriptures is always often used to represent sin because of the way that yeast or leaven permeates dough and affects it. It's a great analogy for sin. You know, there's a big difference between bread that has leaven in it and bread that doesn't have um, leaven in it. You know, bread with leaven in it bakes up beautiful and it's um, fluffy and tastes amazing. Bread without leaven is very thin and it tastes more like a cracker. The same thing is true of our lives, isn't it? A life which sin permeates changes, doesn't it? A life that has sin worked throughout it is changed. There's a vast difference between a life where sin is in every corner of it and a life that has lived resisting and avoiding sin. You know, the Passover celebration is going to be a forever reminder for the people of Israel that they were redeemed from a life of slavery by the blood of the lamb and the feast of the unleavened bread that follows that Passover celebration is a reminder to God's redeemed people to keep themselves apart from sin now that he has redeemed them, to live lives now as God's firstborn son, holy and honoring him, no leaven, no sin in their lives. You know, some of this, there were several requirements for this seven-day uh, celebration. It was the fact that they had to cleanse their houses of all yeast and leaven. They weren't to forget that one little portion in the back of their closet. They were also to have two holy assemblies on the first day and the last. They were to abstain from work and they were to observe this as a statute forever for the nation of Israel. Now twice, once in verse 15 and then down a little bit lower, the Lord um, repeats, which means it's important, uh, 
as he explains the feast, that anyone who eats yeast in that seven days is gonna be cut off from Israel. Now, we're not really sure what that meant. It could have meant set outside the camp for seven days on one end, or it could have meant death. Um, it was practiced uh, in different ways. Now, if you think that sounds a little harsh for eating a piece of leavened bread during this seven days, I'm with you on that. This is bread we're talking about here. That's quite a punishment. But you know, what God is doing here is making a point that doesn't have anything to do with bread, actually. Anyone who takes the laws and the commands of God uh, the Lord lightly by disobeying or flaunting them is showing disrespect and dishonor to the very God that has provided them freely with redemption and salvation. So what God is doing here in the feast of the unliving bread with the Israelites is calling the Israelites to live holy and obedient lives following their redemption. Lives where they refrain from entering into sin when they can. And God is a gracious God because he has given the nation of Israel uh, redemption first, hasn't he? And then he's calling them to live holy lives free from sin. After he's given them that great gift of redemption and salvation, he says, please honor me and respect me through your obedience. Years ago, when I first became a believer, one of the very first verses that I read in the scriptures that captured my attention was Romans 5, 8. It's on your verse sheet. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not wait for me to um, be sin-free before he was willing to die for me. He did not wait for the nation of Israel to be holy and free from sin before he redeemed them from uh, Egypt. Um, we honor God and express our gratitude and love to him for all that he's done for us through our obedience to him. And that's what he's asking for the nation of Israel when he talks about leaven and bread. Look at 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 on your verse sheet. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And 1 John 5, um, 2 and 3. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. You know, Israel's true memorial to the Lord, he talked about the Passover um, in these verses being a memorial to him, their true memorial to the Lord as he brings them out of slavery and sets them on a new beginning uh, as a nation is not simply to go through the motions of having some religious ceremony. Okay, we do this first and then we do seven days of this and whatever. That's not what he's asking of him here. Israel's true memorial to the Lord is their obedience as they faithfully celebrate the Passover, and the feast of the unleavened bread as he's instructed them to do. Honoring God through our obedience to his command expresses our love and reveals our grateful hearts for all that he's done for us. Okay, let's 
read the last couple of verses here together. Look at um, verse 21 with me. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. And then drop down with me to verse 24. He says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And then the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Okay, so once again, Moses goes to the elders of um, Israel here and he gives them the exact same instructions that we've previously read in those verses here that we didn't read. They're to select an unblemished lamb. They're to kill that lamb for the Passover. And of course, they are going to place that blood on their doorposts as their covering so that when the Lord and his destroyer pass through the land. That covering, which has been a sign to the nation of Israel that an animal has lost its life for them, it would also be a sign to the Lord of their faithfulness and their obedience, and he would pass over them with the plague of the death of the firstborn. So it also says here they're to celebrate it as a lasting ordinance. So over and over again in these verses, the Lord says to them, you are to celebrate this as a lasting ordinance of the nation of Israel forever. Moses makes sure here, he says to uh, the elders of Israel, he also says to them that when you enter the promised land, you're supposed to keep doing this. This isn't just until you get to the Jordan River and think, oh, great, we finally made it to our new land so we can stop all of this. Moses tells them in these verses that they should never stop remembering God's redemption from slavery um, and all that he's done for them. He also says here, which I love this from Moses, he says the Passover celebration should be taught from generation to generation so that future generations would not only know what God has done for Israel in the past, but they would have a look into the future. It is the Passover celebration faithfully observed that's gonna do one important thing. It's going to prepare future generations for the nation of Israel, for the Messiah because it is the Passover celebration that for Israel points straight to the coming of the Messiah, the true Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The Passover story is not just a phenomenal redemption story for the people of Israel on the day that they experienced it. It is a phenomenal story for the future generations of uh, Israel to point them directly to Jesus Christ and God's redemption of the whole world. They must pass on their faith 
That's how the Messiah is going to be received by Israel, by generation after generation passing on their faith. Now Moses' instructions to the parents of Israel to pass on the meaning of their faith um, to their children should strike a chord to all of us in this room today too, shouldn't it? We should as families, whether we're mothers or grandmothers or aunts or cousins, whatever we are as part of the family, know that we've got to be involved in passing on our faith, in sharing the knowledge and the wonder of who God is, of understanding of the true God is to future generations. We have to point our young children to salvation also, don't we? It's a clear responsibility. It's a clear responsibility and Moses never forgets it. Look at what he tells the Israelites 40 years later as they sit on the banks of the Jordan River going into the promised land. Look at Deuteronomy 6 with me. And these words, this is Moses, that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. The salvation of future generations, not only of the Israelites, but also of everyone in this room, depends on us passing on the truth of the Lamb of God that will provide redemption for the entire world. Now these verses here, right here in verse 27 and 28, end with this amazing uh, spontaneous worship of the people of Israel as they hear for the first time God's plan of redemption and salvation for their lives. We see them worshiping. And in verse 28, we see them doing something even more phenomenal. We see them obeying, obeying because they are going right out and do all that the land Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. This is really a big moment for the nation of Israel. And as we see them leave Egypt and head towards the promised land, we're not going to see worship and obedience, uh, complete obedience. Uh, so this is a great example here as they uh, fall on their faces before God of the awe and reverence of true worship that comes from our hearts when we recognize and receive God's gift of salvation. Moses tells them that the Lord is going to provide their salvation and they fall on their face and worship God. Look at Peter's words of worship and praise, praise in 1 Peter that also are examples of worship and praise when you recognize what God has done for you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise and worship, just like the Israelites, has got to be our response when we recognize the salvation God has provided for each one of us. Now, the Passover celebration here that God shares for the first time signals a new beginning for um, the nation of Israel as God prepares them to be redeemed from Israel. Their God is the one true God that delivers judgment on Pharaoh, his fake gods, his firstborn sons, and all the firstborn sons of Egypt. As God redeems Egypt, Israel, and brings them out of slavery, he's setting a course for their future that will bind them together as a nation 
and points them towards their future Messiah. This new beginning for Israel is also a reminder for us that we have a new beginning, don't we? God has offered each one of us in this room a new beginning through Jesus Christ. You know, just like Israel, we were once slaves, weren't we? We weren't slaves to Pharaoh, but we were slaves to our sin nature. Just like Israel, it is the blood of an unblemished lamb that provides our salvation. And if we accept that salvation as the covering over our sin, as if we accept the sacrifice of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're gonna be redeemed from an old life. And we too are going to have a new beginning, a new beginning as children of the living God because of the sacrifice and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John 1:12 on your verse sheet. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Israel was God's firstborn son. We have been given the right to be children of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've never thought about having this new beginning, through Jesus Christ, don't leave without coming down front and talking to Deb Haygood or myself or Lynn Kitchens, we'll be down here. Um, We want you to do that. We have a new beginning as well. Pray with me. Father, you're a great and a gracious God. We just thank you and praise you for the new beginning that is offered to each of us through the blood of the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do praise you and worship you and fall on our faces in awe and reverence for this unmerited favor you've given each one of us. We thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that it will change our lives. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.